we're under pressure of not enough jobs, the opioid crisis, housing, inadequate social assistance for people on ODSP, all of these an aging population. Welcome to the Trailblazers and Troublemakers podcast. I'm your host, Scott Costin. My guest today is Dirk Prout, a geotechnical engineer, political activist, and community advocate from London, Ontario. Welcome to the podcast, Durka. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm glad to be considered. So I saw you speak at a political event in Toronto about a year ago, and I was really impressed with your practical, almost scientific approach to arguing for progressive social and political change. Is that a product of your engineering background, or is it a deliberate strategy uh, designed to make political theory more practical to people? I think it comes from a combination of things. So um, I'd like to go back to my childhood, if I may. Um, I did. I grew up, even though I was born in Canada, I grew up in the Twin Island state of Trinidad and Tobago. And I grew up uh, in through the 70s and 80s at a time when the country was transitioning from being a um, colony of Britain to an independent country and then moving on to becoming a republic. And there were a lot of voices at the time. Well, there were voices in my own home who were telling me what life was like. Um, my grandmother, who actually knew slaves, had slaves in her family, um, was talking about how slavery was, uh, resistance to slavery on the island she grew up in, which was um, St. Vincent, uh, resistance to not just slavery, but also colonization by a combined group of Africans and uh, indigenous peoples. And, um, uh, you know, at the same time, there was this organization called National Joint Action Committee, which uh, never really received political prominence, but had uh, a sort of... Um, way of speaking to uh, defining our identity and some of the problems we faced, uh, which was an extension of what the ruling party was doing, because they had to do a lot of convincing and, and get a public buy-in to say, let's become an independent country and then finally a republic, right? Right. So those were interesting times to, to, to be growing up in. Certainly, uh, I would say that I wasn't really exposed to um, intellectual theory about political science. It was more of a, I come by it, I say, as by feel. And most of my time spent since um, high school were in, in university and a little bit beyond was spent mostly reading uh, academic and, and engineering textbooks and journals because I was a student, right? Uh, once I, um, in my final year, um, I met a gentleman who was, he was studying gender studies at uh, the University of Toronto. And he told me, you should read a book about bell hooks. 
and there were people too in my um, in my student co-op who also were studying gender studies and I found they would be throwing away their photocopies of journal papers and some of these things were interesting so I started with that and reading about the black experience reading about the history of Trinidad reading reading the African-American experience, the African-Canadian experience uh, at a time when there were very few books. Now you have a lot of people like Desmond Coles and uh, the, the young lady, uh, her name excuse me, that wrote, um, uh, who, who is a co-founder of the Black Lives Movement in Canada and, and, and wrote about policing Black lives. You know, all these people are writing about the Canadian experience now and that's how I came to it. So I, 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 I guess the practicality is rooted in my training as an engineer. And it's also rooted in um, the fact that I'm not coming from a intellectual bent of, uh, you know, socialism or anything like that. I'm, I'm more uh, absorbing these things by feel as I think most, most people would you know, you see a problem and you try to fit, um, fit a solution. Now, just getting back to your, your engineering background, can you describe uh, kind of what you do and what kinds of projects you're involved in? Sure. A lot of people um, don't know much about engineering. And they, the first thing they talk to me about actually is bridges and roads, which is things that they see. Um, engineers do a lot more than that. And there are different specialties. So I'm a subspecialty within a broad branch of engineering called civil engineering, which is basically um, concerned with things that the public would use, even if it's paid for with private money. It's, it's things that are like building structures, um, you know, any sort of manipulation of the environment to make uh, life safer for people or, or the environment as well. A geotechnical engineer in particular deals with things on or in the ground. So I'm dealing with foundations, I'm dealing with tunnels, I'm dealing with telling you how to make a safe excavation so that you can build your sewer, your water main. Um, uh, some of the things I've also dealt with kind of crossover into environmental engineering or hydrogeology. So for example, if, if you are building a tunnel, but you're going through um, soils that are very uh, permeable, that means they, permeable means they transmit water, right? Uh, and and um, certainly that will destabilize the excavation and um, be a danger to both human life and property property. So you'll have to dewater. So in that way, some of my um, recommendations kind of cross into hydrogeology. Although I would rely on a hydrogeologist to do certain calculations, even though I have the training, they do not day by day. So I would uh, rely on them to do that. But I would make certain recommendations and I'll know when they're needed or I could see what kind of problems could come up during construction if groundwater is not adequately controlled. Um, is, it requires a little bit of knowledge of geology, uh, although not as much as a geological engineer as a geologist. 
Um, I'm more interested in the mechanics of the material when it's subjected to load or subjected to groundwater flows, um, or you know, it's being manipulated for um, for any construction needs. Yeah. So basically, some of us too. I don't do much of that. Some of us do pavement design as well, because that's something that's right on the ground. And we are also the people you call in if you have a property that's right next to a, a slope and you want to make sure that slope is stable. We can check it. We can recommend what to do to stabilize it, things like that. You know, I saw on your LinkedIn page, and I don't know how up to date it is, but you mentioned a project you were working on that was, uh, I believe, in wildlife overpass or something like that can you just yes, briefly that's talk a about new that addition so it's the, the project is in its very early stages i'm excited to be working on something like that uh, the project is is in windsor i'm not quite sure if the client is the city of windsor but i believe it is and um it's a major thoroughfare in windsor where there have been a lot of incidents of animal uh, vehicle uh, collisions and of course a lot of them would be fatal so they're thinking about um, connecting two green spaces that are on either side of the roadway uh, with uh, animal uh, wildlife crossing I understand it's going to be quite sizable so it might go either over the roadway or under the roadway either way um you know i have to put some input and so they're at the ea stage so the municipal the province has each province across canada has uh environmental assessment procedure which uh, municipalities and developers are required to follow and my employer has been retained to do that so the they're looking at all sorts of different things Things such as species at risk um, and the structural engineers are looking to see where they could site it. Is it feasible? Um, we have, of course, the environmental people doing their stuff, the bugs and bunnies people. And then where I come in is, is saying, looking at um, previous work that other people did, because we have, we're not at the stage where we're doing an investigation because we're still trying to figure out where's the best place to locate it. Uh, I'm using existing geo, geotechnical and geological information to see what the anticipated ground conditions could be and how that will influence construction. So. so the engineering world has traditionally been pretty male dominated. And I'm wondering if you could tell us if that's changed much over the years and if you've met any resistance along the way as a, as a woman in, in engineering. Yeah, um, I've been, uh, over the past year, I've uh, been asked this question or modifications of that question, like being a woman in politics, uh, a lot more than I ever had. And now I'm starting to reflect on it uh, a lot more deeply than I ever had before, because um, for me, it wasn't just being a woman in engineering, it was also being a Black woman in engineering and i can tell you that from the get-go it was quite lonely so um i started off when i returned from trinidad i started off taking sciences in a university transfer program at douglas college in new westminster british columbia and uh the more advanced i got into my science courses the less and less women and also the fewer minorities 
you know, um, so for example, I was in an advanced calculus class with 13 people and 10 of them were white guys. And then there was me and a Asian fellow and a, a, a guy I think was probably from Iran. And that was, that was the extent of it. And, and, and it was a lot like that. Um, there was some overt racism in that a lot of my classmates didn't speak to me. <laughs> Um, even, even there was a white woman who didn't speak to me and in a kind of way, nobody spoke to her too. So I, I kind of felt, you know, at the time I was really young, if I had to live my life again, maybe I would make some approaches to her. Um, I did have a, a couple people speak to me, but that was it. And then I transferred into engineering at U of T again, we had a very large class for civil engineering 120 including the part-time students and I believe I was one of only two black women um, there were a couple Asian women in the class as well and and but overall I think we probably had if we had a dozen women we had a lot and as you as you get higher and higher um, you specialize in something Sometimes some specialties don't have it. Uh, I felt like I, sometimes I felt a little bit like an outsider because you know people wouldn't naturally come talk to you. But the class I was in if, was a little bit of a rabble rousing class. So we, in the end, I wound up talking to every single person in the class, and and that was a good thing. Um, but there are a lot of stereotypes. So for example when I graduated uh, or just around the time I was graduating the economy in Ontario was terrible it was really bad even people who had graduated from civil two years before at the top of the class could not get jobs and I would have guys argue with me saying companies are top heavy with women and you know especially seeing that you're black you'll probably get a job before us and that's uh that's not true you know um and and it's very difficult when it's just you alone trying to fight with about four guys telling you no this is our belief and and no argument i came with could persuade them you know um in reality i can tell you that it's 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 not like that companies are not going to preferentially hire in fact we don't i don't think we have quotas in canada so they were quite uh, they were quite misguided um, in the work in the work field i found that people are generally nice to you and polite but what you get more is is what has been described as microaggressions so some people would snub you they would um, probably subtly keep you down, even though you know you've done good work. Um, a lot of women in general talk about men speaking on their behalf. You know, the or, man, the uh, paraphrasing, yeah. paraphrasing what you said. You said the same thing five minutes earlier, and they'll paraphrase it, and everybody will go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." You know, uh, those are those are things that you um, you encounter. Uh, along the way. And um, so I think I've been fairly fortunate, but I've heard stories from other women uh, in engineering that, uh, you know, they've, they've really been passed over. Um, and 
in the end, they wind up leaving. So that's where we are now. The stats show that at one point, enrollment overall for women in engineering had increased uh, since the 1990s when I graduated. And now it's beginning, beginning to decrease again. Um, we, in some fields like environmental engineering and chemical engineering, we, and civil, we graduate quite a bit of women. In fact, uh, I graduated in 1994, the chemistry, the chemical engineering class at U of T was 50% women. Wow. And then I, I haven't looked back to see what the amount is now, but you know, in those branches, we get a lot. But when you're looking at electrical, mechanical, you could have, you could graduate a class with no women at all. Uh, the other thing that's happening is women are going, entering the profession, but we're not staying. So to see someone like myself uh, reflected in senior management is next to nothing. I, I don't see very many women in upper management or uh, executive levels of engineering. Uh, well, that is true across the board, but it's certainly in that case and in particular black women and indigenous women um, or indigenous people in general uh, and an, another thing too I don't notice although I, I I have to I'm quite pleased I'm starting to see employers starting to talk about that is people who are uh, um, openly LGBT two-spirited or uh, any sort of gender non-conforming that is uh, usually um, not something that I, uh, you know, the kind of people I've seen encouraged or, or welcomed before in an engineering space. And it's now it's starting to become more normal. And I'm pleased by that. But we have a lot more work to do. So it's kind of a situation of slowly but surely, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I don't know how other minorities feel, but I could say as a black woman, because it's, I have never, and I said, I've, I graduated in 1994, in all these years, I had never worked in the same office with more than, in the same department with more than one woman. I said it was only at most two of us in all those years and uh, never had another black person working even in the office as an engineer, except now. You know, when I took this current job I'm with two years ago, that was the first time. And I've never had uh, indigenous person uh, on my staff uh, as an engineer or even sitting across the table with me. Well, there's a challenge to some of the engineering schools out there to uh, attract a you know broader and more diverse set of uh, students to their schools. Now, I want to shift to politics. You mm -hmm. were the NDP candidate in London North Centre last year. Mm -hmm. That riding has been liberal since its formation in 1997, with the exception of a one-term Conservative MP. Was this your first time as a, as a federal candidate, and what was the experience like? This was my first time as a candidate, and um, it took uh, it took a, quite a few years of people asking me to actually get the courage to run. Um, you know, I had an interest, but then I wondered, could I really do it? Um, so I started with to build that confidence. I 
had a few cheerleaders, let, let's say um, a few of them were women, of course. And, um, and I also started reading a lot about what it takes to become a politician and what is expected to you expected of you once you're elected. Because I remember one time I went to a boot camp for engineers hosted by the Professional Engineers of Ontario and Peter Tabins, uh, a longtime ONDP uh, MPP. He said one of the most important things is to remember is not just to run, even if you're running in a no hope riding, he says, prepare to win and prepare to lose. Because he he gave an example of a friend who ran in Willowdale and the guy had, he thought his name would just be a placeholder. He'll just be taking it, taking one for the cause and, and lo and behold, you know, he won the seat and he was totally miserable because he wasn't, uh, he wasn't prepared for it. So I took all that advice to heart. Um, I knew going in, it would be a tough slug, of course, but I believed uh, because I would sort of been reading the tea leaves nationally and even within London and London Centre itself, I believed that people's hearts were changing. A lot of people were uh, disgusted by the fact that Trudeau did not follow through on electoral reform. Um, and they would tell me that at the doors, whether they were liberal or NDP, um, long-time NDP voters who in 2015 voted for Trudeau only because of that promise. So he got two sets of people upset with him. Um, and people were looking for, for true leadership. They were looking for more human-centered um, values. Uh, and I believe that was where the NDP was at. I believe those kinds of policies would have been successful. So I was comforted that I could bear bear that message. And, and I think um, we, we won almost every poll back that we had lost in 2015. Um, and I think we could even make more gains uh, in London North Centre with our message and, and everything like that. You increased the vote share. You brought it up 9% to 23% of the vote. And um, I'm just wondering, because I, I also note that in the same riding provincially, two years ago, the NDP won for the first time in many years. Is something happening in that riding? Do you think there's a, a chance that uh, NDP support could grow federally? I believe that NDP could support could grow federally across London. It already has been. So when I moved to London in 2004, there was only one of the six seats. So when you say London West, London North Centre, London Fanshawe, and then you look federally, provincially. That's how I get to the six. Um, London Fanshawe was held by um, Irene Matteson, who retired in 2019. And um, she was soon joined provincially by Teresa Armstrong. And then in a by-election in 2013, when I was the president of London West Federal federal and provincial. We got Peggy Sattler elected provincially. And uh, I worked on um, Terence's campaign from the beginning, from his nomination days all the way up to um, when he actually won. It was fantastic. I knew it would take a lot of work. Um, Terence 
put in that work and we built a fantastic team and we were successful. London is a place where we've got a lot of gutting of manufacturing. It's been absolutely crazy, the London St. Thomas area. Um, with the Ford plant closing down, there was a truck plant in St. Thomas closed down, electromotive leaving, that was particularly painful. Then most recently, after 100 years of successful manufacturing, Kellogg's closed down. And then you had Trudeau come in 2015 and say the days of manufacturing are over you know we have to look to something else well you know that something else was not put back um you know we are struggling here in london uh with a opioid crisis that's probably only second to vancouver british columbia downtown east side and also housing i mean could you believe in a in a small municipality of 370,000 people london is struggling with housing so it's it's affecting a lot of people it's affecting the city's ability to cope with the opioid crisis because you need proper housing to followed through with the city's housing first strategy. It's affecting the indigenous people that live on the three reserves that are nearby because they have inadequate housing on the reserves. They come into London and then they can't find proper housing. You know, and now we're being pressured because people from the GTA, uh, whether um, they're recent retirees who wanna make their money go further or for whatever reason, come here and prices for homes are also going up. So what used to be on average, maybe 200,000, you're looking at 400 to 500,000 for a, a, a regular home in London. Um, so we're, we're under pressure of not enough jobs, the opioid crisis, housing, inadequate social assistance for people on ODSP, all of these an aging population. Um, so long-term care certainly was something that came up during the federal election um, in, in London. So I, I really think these are the issues that the NDP is speaking to along with the environment, you know, where we're looking at those issues and people are certainly ready to listen because they're not hearing the answers for the other two revolving door parties. Yeah, I mean, London's a great city, the forest city. I, I love London. And yeah, uh, so you did your master's here. <laughs> I, I did do my master's there. I actually lived in London uh, on two separate occasions and oh, okay. know, know it quite well. Uh, but you mentioned the manufacturing base there, and it, it is really a tragedy what's happened with it. Um, of course, one of the most successful manufacturers in London poses a very thorny mm -hmm. ethical dilemma. And, yes. I, and if, you know, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but General Dynamics Land Systems Canada is a manufacturer in London that produces uh, light armored vehicles. Now, a lot of them get used by uh, Canada and its allies, but about $14 billion worth are in the process of being uh, supplied to Saudi Arabia. It's a very, very tricky issue because you have good paying jobs, union jobs, and then you have these uh, armored vehicles which are being sent to a country which has, you know, an odious human rights record and is engaged in an unseemly military conflict. What's your take on that situation? Uh, are there any answers? How do we 
support those workers in London who are producing these things, but, but uh, protest their sale to Saudi Arabia? First of all, I'm, I, it's, it's a difficult one, as you can imagine. I'm right next door. London North Centre is right next door to London Fanshawe. The plant is in London Fanshawe. And it, it, it was a concern for us, you know, how to, how to message that. But I think the, the solution, um, and I've heard not only Jigmeet mention it when we did our campaign launch in London, last year, but also um, I've heard others um, speak to it, like uh, Martin Lukacs, who recently wrote a book about uh, Trudeau. Uh, basically, I think the plant originally used to produce locomotives. And then um, I guess Trudeau Sr. changed it over and signed this deal with General Dynamics to have it produce uh, military style um, vehicles and stuff like that. We can re return it to, to um, producing trains. Um, one of the things I tweeted about, uh, and I think Canada should think about it, uh, seriously, is what do we do now that we may totally lose Greyhound? So already we've lost Greyhound from British Columbia to um, to Manitoba, and Greyhound is scaling back service even where it's quite populous here in Ontario and Quebec. And perhaps we can run, there's always been rumors or promises of high-speed rail along the Windsor to Quebec corridor. And we have all these rail lines, we might need to rebuild them and certainly talk to indigenous people about that. But, you know, all of that will reduce isolation. It probably might make prices to, for people to go see a doctor or even to get simple things like groceries into rural northern communities much easier if there's a uh, even if it's a skeleton rail service and you feed it with buses like something like that I think would be a, a noble goal it's it's a terrible condition to be in as a worker to and I know these people you know um, need to put food on the table, they need to uh, pay for their children's education and all of that. But why do we have to put them in that situation where they're doing so on the backs of, of, of the lives of innocent women and children and, and people? You know, um, Saudi Arabia could have dealt with Saudi Arabia's premise for going to Yemen was something about um, cutting down um, the ISIS, or uh, I guess it was um, in, in that region. But in reality, it's a proxy war against Iran. And so, uh, you know, there is, there is some, um, some discussion there. But speaking directly to the issue, what the federal government, apart from switching the plant and the purpose of the plant, that I think will preserve work for work because making a peaceful item such as trains for transportation, as opposed to um, vehicles that could uh, are highly weaponized and can kill people, is also looking at the contract itself. Did it really need to be signed? And I 
and there's so much secrecy about it. It's it's actually the, the bit I have read on foreign policy sites is that it's actually in contradiction with Canada's own laws and regulations with respect to selling, uh, with respect to military procurement. And uh, we have a case, right? They haven't paid their bills. I, I don't know what the status is now. Everybody's preoccupied with COVID and not thinking about Yemen, but, um, you know, there's so many arguments to be made for Canada to to make an exit from this sorry situation. I wanted to, to shift gears now to something uh, a little more pleasant. And that <laughs> that is, uh, you are for a very long time, I think about 15 years or so, you've been the president of the London chapter of the Spelling Bee of Canada. What do you do what do you get out of it, and and how does how do spelling bees help kids prepare for their future? Yeah, spelling bees are fun, um, but uh, I think I'm I'm going to have to give that up, uh, you know, just for personal and professional reasons, and then also the practicalities of being a political person. I might get elected. Um, I got involved in Spelling Bee when I lived in Toronto, in Scarborough, um, because the lady that ran it, she was from Trinidad. She was friends of a friend and she invited me to get involved. And so I was an official, I was a coach. And then when I moved to London, the, um, the president and founder of Spelling Bee of Canada at the time asked me to take over the chapter. And I'm still here after after 15 years. I guess one of the things that benefits kids could be put in the words of a letter I got from a parent who wrote to my employer. My employer at the time was was the major sponsor. And she said, uh, Lisa said that basically her sons were really happy for this opportunity because it provided an intellectual outlet because a lot of things that are geared for kids are mostly sports, you know, and he was not necessarily an athletic child. So for her son to be able to have an intellectual outlet was something important. And parents have told me that on another occasion, I had a young lady that um, uh, came third and he said this was really important to his daughter's self-esteem because other, she saw her friends excelling at other things and she felt she needed something to excel at. But more practically, I think one of the things I have observed is these kids usually come one or two from each from different schools. So they don't, they don't all know each other, but when they come together for the love of words and spelling and reading, they make friends and they make long lasting friends. Um, and, and that's a beautiful thing to see. Um, we have been successful in London in having an organization that pulls in not only volunteers who are very diverse, but the kids are diverse. And you could imagine a lot of immigrant kids also participate in the B. It's a, a way for them to master English in a fun, exciting, but yet challenging way. And I guess one of the big things that I know it promotes is, is grit and uh, setting a goal, knowing how to set a goal, how 
to, um, you have the big goal. So say you wanna last to the eighth round in the spelling bee, which is quite an achievement. And um, you might set little goals. Okay, I'm gonna study 10 words a day, things like that. Um, and the skills that make you successful in a spelling bee, I believe are transferable to any part of life or any study that a young person, young person takes. So yeah. That's fantastic. That's, that's rewarding. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and I know it's not just there that you do your, your community involvement. Researching you, I saw that you're involved in a lot of different community activities. You've been a financial supporter of a bursary for black students in the London area. You're involved in a lot of groups. Now, in terms of connecting with, you know, blue collar working class voters, there's some people, and I count myself in this group, uh, there's some people that are worried that we're getting too focused on identity and not focused enough on class. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and what's the proper balance? How do we make sure that we don't lose uh, some of our core constituencies on the left by trying to court some newer constituencies? I obviously am a black woman candidate and I'm going out in London that even though London North Center is quite diverse, uh, relatively speaking for London, it's not a Toronto, okay? So uh, most of the people who are voting for me are, are white people. And uh, London North Centre has very wealthy people, but it also has a large working class. Parts of it spans the Eastern part of London, which historically back to the 1800s was always, um, I, I really like that concept, which is what millennials are in now that you could just walk to work. So where the Kellogg's factory was along Dundas and the McCormick's factory, and there were other factories along Dundas street, uh, behind them, there are developments with um, houses, and these were the houses of the people that worked in those factories and businesses. And I found that if you speak to people, if you are cognizant of class issues, um, and you also realize too that sometimes you get intersections. So for example, some people get trapped in a class because of their ethnicity, because they're black, because they're indigenous, because they're an immigrant, irrespective of their ethnicity. English is not their first language if they're living in a predominantly in English area. So you always have to draw out, well, what is actually what is it actually the problem there and try to connect it to a broader issue of human rights you know a sense of belonging a sense of participation i think when you frame your arguments and your discussions like that you get buy in Certainly, I've been able to walk some of that line because I have been a renter. I have not, oh, I come from an immigrant family. I have not, now I guess I'm sort of comfortable as a senior engineer, but it took a long time to get there. And I know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. And so, you know, you sort of have to have some empathy as well. None of us 
will ever have all the experiences of the people that we're purporting to represent. You know, you have to represent a broad community, but I think one of the biggest things you have to do is listen, you know, listen to the experience and, and uh, listening isn't enough. You've got to reflect and you're listening not so much to answer, but you're listening to understand. And I think that was one of, one of the most difficult things or one, it is one of the most difficult things to do, but it must, it must be done as a, as a political activist. It's something that must be done. Well, before we wrap up, Durka, the most important question I have for you is when do you think there's going to be another federal election and are you going to seek to be the candidate again in London North Center for the NDP? Well, I've already indicated to the candidate search committee in London North Center that I'd like to be the candidate again. Um, so I don't know if it's going to be a contested nomination or not. I'm preparing for that. In terms of if there's going to be a um, election again, I certainly do believe so. I think I would rather see all the parties work together to try and get through this pandemic and try to set up Canada to be a more resilient country, not just against pandemic, but of of course, um, the, the thing that we don't talk about, which is related to the pandemic indirectly, which is the environment. Um, people, we don't, even I don't, talk about it enough but it's something in the background and when I was going door to door that is something that a lot of people told me they want us to work together you know which is which comes hand in hand to the disappointment of not having electoral reform I see um, Erin O'Toole and the conservatives sort of positioning themselves to agitate for an election um, whenever the liberals make some kind of goof. And I think they will continue that pattern. Um, unfortunately, they aren't coming with any valid solutions. They're coming with the same old tired conservative solutions, which I don't think are very appealing now. And the liberals are sort of reading the tea leaves and looking at what happened on both coasts and thinking, wow, we could get a majority they're playing, you know, they're trying to skillfully make things confidence motions that are not. So who knows what will happen in the summer. Right now, with the news that there's a vaccine, quite rightfully so, there's a lot of discussion about that. Um, but at some point, we have to turn uh, to looking past COVID and what we want. And I feel that if they don't come with a good plan for a just recovery, you know, there's things that are politically smart, but not the best for people. I think they will, they're looking for that opportunity to come in there, uh, the liberals that is, and, and, and uh, seek for their, try for their majority. The window is closing now for that, but I think they will towards the summer. It's been great talking to you, Durka. Thank you so much yes. for taking the time and, and maybe we'll check in with you when that election does come, if you're the candidate and uh, see how your campaign is going. Okay, thanks. 